everyone, and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast. And it is our best films of 2020 podcast, which you might believe will be rather short, considering all the cinemas have been closed or whatever, but we will find a way to talk about something. So I'm once again joined by Chris Ward and Wesley Shearer. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi. So it's going okay. As we mentioned just before we started there, we're just about hanging in. And actually, in all seriousness, we've been able to watch loads. I don't know about you lot, but I watched more this year in terms of just things I had missed before and all that, particularly in the first lockdown than I've ever done before. So, you know, there was, I think watching film or TV was kind of a big comfort to people when they weren't allowed to get out of the house. Definitely. I mean, I think I'm in a similar situation where I always kind of try to keep a track of everything I've watched for the first time through a year, not just like new releases, but stuff I haven't seen before. And usually by the time I get to like maybe the last couple of weeks of December, I'm like, oh, I'm so close to 200. Like, can I maybe fire through like another 10 or something in the last week? Just try and crack the 200 mark. I've never quite got there. It always seems to top out around about like 190, 195 or whatever. This year I breezed past 200 in about July, I think. So I think we're, <laughs> I think we're, we're absolutely covered. Having been like the nature of like the industry for me like I was out of work from like May through August and it was like a couple of films a day you know maybe maybe more maybe a few shorts thrown in there as well so um yeah no lots watched this year not all of it new releases obviously as you say yeah. cinemas have kind of I mean cinemas did reopen like over the summer but I, there was nothing that really tempted me to take the risk <laughs> in all honesty yeah. so I, I haven't been in a cinema since March um so a lot of a lot of my kind of favorites of the year by necessity kind of come from the first three months of the year um this stuff that i saw in cinemas then but there's actually i was saying to you again just before we started ali that like i was really taken aback looking through like my kind of lists and being like wow there are, i actually have seen a load of stuff this year that i'd kind of you know i don't think i'd realized the extent of my view in the new releases because again you just assume that like oh there's not really been anything you can't yeah. go to the cinema you can't you know there's probably not going to be that much but actually yeah i'd say i've still managed to see probably about like 50 odd new releases um, what about you, Wesley? What's your watching year been? Yeah, I mean, not too dissimilar, to be honest. Obviously not quite reaching the, the Chris Ward scales of uh, how many films are ticking off in a year. But saying that, I mean, I've been very privileged enough to be continuing working throughout this um, and working from home. So that sort of developed a, a new pattern for me, especially at the beginning with the novelty of being able to well, get up in the morning and watch lots of new films, you know? Um, and I started really, really well by, like, watching, basically making my way through the sort of criterion, some of the criterion stuff. And yep. this is great. This is excellent. Wake up really early, put the kettle on, watch a nice film before I start work. That honestly lasted about three weeks before the reality of actually working from home then hit <laughs> um, and realised I couldn't keep that up. But that said, I think as the year went on, I, I did watch a lot more, a lot more new releases, than I thought as well, and also sort of made me consider the sort of experience of watching films where I was always very much like, I need to watch them in a cinema, and I still very much am like that, but mm -hmm. I can still get a lot of enjoyment out of watching a certain film that's a new release at home, you know, surrounded by the sort of comforts. It's a very different viewing experience, but I think I've learned a lot about the different viewing experiences as the years went on. Because, uh, like Chris, I've not been in a cinema since March um, either, which is a crying shame. But, yeah. yeah. 
Well, my uh, most of my films that I'm going to talk about were from early part of the year as well. But that's partly because I saw them at the Glasgow Film Festival, which I think, did it shut down halfway through or did it get to the end, Chris? Can you remember? Uh, no, it got all the way through. It ended, I think, it was the first weekend in March that um, it ended. So it probably finished up about two and a half weeks before lockdown. Um, maybe a little bit more, but no, I because I I barely saw anything at the festival this year because I was also out of work in January and February. I was kind of watching my spending, um, so I didn't uh, get along too much at the festival this year, um, especially by by usual standards. Uh, I saw a couple of things, but again, they were mostly kind of archival stuff. Um, but I think the only new release I saw was Synchronic, which is the new um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead film, or kind of horror directors, um, but. I think yeah, I think that was the only new release I saw at the, the festival this year. But um, yeah, no, because de- no, I de- definitely made it to the end because I actually ended up going along to one of the the closing parties as well. Which, in retrospect, you're like, yeah, that definitely couldn't happen now. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, being... I think that the, it was in the window that something was going to have to happen pretty quickly at that point because I remember chatting to a few folk, um, a, an American film, which I'll, I'll talk about later. And I think the feeling was we have to get home fairly soon. I might be making that up, but there was certainly something in the air that things were not going well, put it that way. The one um, that was actually was the short film festival, which usually happens at the end of March. Yeah. Um, I think we were due, or mid-March, it's usually around about like kind of 15th, 16th, um, which is obviously about a week before lockdown. Um, and they cancelled outright um, and postponed, did like a virtual edition. Uh, later in the summer, I think it was like end of August, start of September, um, which was actually really good, but uh, obviously not quite the event that they were they were hoping for. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to do is we've picked um, five films each and we may go off on different tangents as we normally do or talk about more. But I think what we'll do is we'll start one each. So I'll start with my first one and then we'll go around then Chris and then Wesley do it that way. And uh, actually, this will be the last film that I saw in a cinema, and it was a packed cinema at the film festival. And it was Anthony Baxter's documentary, Flint, which has just been shown on BBC Scotland just recently. And um, it was, as I say, it was sold out GFT. And that, even that idea now, I don't know about sitting cheek to jowl in a smallish uh, cinema, you know, uh, I don't know. It's a strange thing to think that that's, you know, We'll be going back to that at some point. But the film itself is, um, as I say, it's a documentary. It's a subject that uh, Michael Moore has covered previously, I think. And um, it's about the situation in Flint, Michigan, which was once the one of the richest cities in America because it had General Motors uh, based there. And then it crashed in the 80s and it's now one of the poorest cities. And they had got their new governor, I forget his name, the new governor came along and said, instead of getting your water from the local lake, because it's the Great Lakes area up there, um, we're going to switch that. It'll be much cheaper to get it from the River Flint. And I'm telling you, the River Flint makes the Clyde look like (laughs) the Mediterranean. It is, uh, you know, you just need to look at it and say, oh, so we're going to be drinking this. And very quickly, people were getting ill and uh, people were getting rashes on their body. The few cars that were still being made in Flint were rusting because of the water that was hitting them. So you think, what's that doing to people? It was corroding the pipes, which were made from lead. So the kids, they reckon about 10,000 kids have been taking water that has, you know, had uh, lead in it. And anyway, 
What uh, Anthony did was to go over... Now, Anthony Baxter's the guy who made the Trump documentaries, the You've Been Trumped and uh, all the kind of based up in uh, Aberdeen. And he went over and just basically saw the feelings of government and trying to, the people that are supposed to protect you and how they were, they just weren't doing that. And there's all sorts of dodgy characters that appear who claim to be scientists in inverted commas. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating film. It's full of interesting characters. It kind of shows you the power in America and probably everywhere, but particularly in America of celebrity because Mark Ruffalo gets involved. The Reverend Jesse Jackson is involved. Obama turns up and doesn't really do himself much credit, I have to say. Um, it's a, a... Alex Baldwin does the voiceover for the whole thing and eventually goes to visit on camera uh, later in the film. And then you've also got religion as well and how strong that is and how that actually gives a lot of people still a lot of support. Um, uh, it's a fascinating film. I don't know if either of you'd seen it. No, I haven't. Well, it's on, uh, it's on iPlayer at the moment. I really do recommend it. Um, a film about bad water <laughs> might not sound the most exciting thing in the world, but uh, it, it really is. I, I mean, make your blood boil what these people have gone through, you know, showering and uh, uh, flushing in with bottled water, just the amount of bottle. you know, this is the year or the last couple of years where people are saying there's too much plastic in our system. By a week, one person's got three bin bags full of empty plastic bottles because that's what they're using to wash and... It's uh, yeah, it's a, it really is um, an arresting film, I would say. Well worth watching. Chris, what's your first choice? Um, well, funnily enough, when you say you wouldn't expect to be talking about a film about dirty water featuring Mark Ruffalo, there were actually two this year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which, can I just um, say he? This uh, is what he's interested in. He fronts a, a, move, a, a group. And it's about getting clean water to people. That is what he, so he fronts it and is involved heavily with it, which is why his interest in, is it Dark Water? Is that what you're going to? Dark Waters, yeah. That's the, the Todd Haynes film, which uh, isn't necessarily like my absolute favourite film of the year, but I thought would make a kind of uh, a, a decent segue here. Um, yeah. yeah, it's Todd Haynes directed it, who people will know is the director of Carol and um, like Safe and I'm Not There and Velvet Goldmine. Um, Velvet Goldmine, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's based on the true story. It's uh, Ruffalo plays Robert Blot, who was a lawyer who investigated uh, Dupont chemical um, kind of contaminating waters in a town in West Virginia. It got the runoff from one of their plants, uh, killed hundreds of cows. Uh, people were kind of struck down with kind of like mad cow disease as as um, a result of it. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, it almost reminds me of David Fincher's Zodiac in a way. It's this kind of like years long investigation, you know, it's not just about kind of, you know, getting the results, the kind of whodunit aspect or anything like this. It's, it's more about the process and the kind of the toll it takes on him and his personal life. Um, and yeah, just that kind of sickness of like corporate America, you know, which is just kind of feels like cliche to say out loud, but um, the way that they handle it, it's actually really it's really well done. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel like you're kind of bog standard procedural. It doesn't feel like you're necessarily going over well-trodden territory. The performances are universally great. It's a fantastic cast. It's like obviously Ruffalo on top, but you've also got like Anne Hathaway, Bill Camp, Tim Robbins, Victor Garber, Bill Pullman. Um, it's kind of a load of heavy hitters and they all really do good work. It's also um, from a kind of aesthetic point of view, it's Haynes' first time shooting digital. Right. Uh, which is interesting because he actually manages to make it look uncannily like film. <laughs> it's like, it's really, um, I, I just from a technical standpoint, it's really 
stunning um from that but yeah just a kind of a period piece as well starts in the i think the 90s uh, and kind of goes through over the span of about a decade or so and uh, maybe more actually um and yeah no it's it just as a kind of period piece and kind of a, a a snapshot of this kind of thing that feels like it should be much bigger news <laughs> you know it feels like probably because it's all to do with kind of like you know non-stick coatings and pans and stuff like that is is the chemicals that go into that and um so it's not just something that affects america it's something that affects kind of everyone worldwide and um yeah no it's it's uh upsetting <laughs> it's an upsetting watch but Similarly, it's, uh, it's it's the the way that people are kind of um just let down by the process, by the process of government or, you know, whether that's big government or local government and, and other people have to go and kind of fight their corner. All they have to group together to protect the health of their families and kids. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely, you know, the influence of like big money in it and stuff as well. And, you know, like how, you know, it's that weighing up like, oh, is it going to do us more damage to have a few people die or to like recall our products kind of thing, <laughs> you know, um, it's like putting it in terms that kind of abstract and just taking all kind of, you know, human well-being out of it and looking at the bottom line, all that kind of thing. But yeah, I know it's, it's the kind of thing that like at first glance would make you feel like a change of pace for, for Todd Haynes, but uh, he, he quits himself very well, uh, I think. And it probably has probably the film it is from the past that would have most in common with is safe, which is if anybody remembers is Julianne Moore convinced that she has some kind of unspecified illness. Um, and it's never clear whether it's mental health problems making her think this, or if she actually does have something, if she's allergic to something in the air and it's the, the film kind of focuses on her trying to cleanse herself of this mystery illness. Um, so there's kind of a through line there from that, which was made like 25 years ago. Um, still not much has changed. <laughs> In, in a quarter of a century. Well, Wesley, what about yourself? What's your first choice? Um, well, I'm going to switch up a bit and maybe pick another film purely because of that sort of another seg, very, very loosely segue into the fact about films that showcase that sort of power of unity against government failings, essentially. Um, and I'm going to talk about Rocks, which, <coughs> excuse me, um, Rocks, which is by uh, director Sarah Gavron, who I think also directed Suffragette um, from a few years back, but this is as far removed from Suffragette as, as one can probably imagine, I would say. Um, it recently was released on Netflix, uh, I think last month, so it's pretty easily accessible just now as well. But I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about a, a British a British Nigerian, I think, teenage girl who, who lives in this sort of hackney estate in, in London. Uh, her mum struggles with mental health issues. Uh, she leaves um, the teenage girl who is known as Rox and her little brother to basically defend for themselves. And it sort of follows the sort of impacts of that and how she sort of struggles or tries to cope with keeping her and her brother and that small family together. I think, first and foremost, it's it's really easy to compare this sort of film to basically any of Ken Loach's work, like especially like Ez and, and that sort of thing. But I think as true as that is, and I made that comparison myself and watching it, I think it does it a disservice as a whole, really. Like it's a film that really stands out on its own. It's such a it's such an arresting film, I think. It's got it's almost got like it's got more to say in its quiet scenes than a whole Adam Sorkin script does, to be quite honest. It's it's really it's really sort of natural um, and, well, sort of dare I say it, like, I hate this word, but authentic. I'm doing yeah. air quotes here. Yeah. Um, but 
it's such a bleak film, which is where a lot of the sort of Ken Loach comparisons come from, but it's also really, really joyful and it's a complete like world away from a lot of films that have similar themes that have now found themselves being labelled with that, you know, poverty porn sort of label that, yeah, yeah. that is um, horribly attached to them. But I think what really sort of carries the film throughout is it's, it's the lived experiences of all the characters in it, um, which is ma- which is like sort of delivered by the, this amazing central cast of, I think, basically mostly non-professional actors. So there's lots of improvised dialogue while the, while the cameras are kept rolling. Um, I think as well, uh, Sarah Gavron sh- shot it all sort of chronologically as well, which again sort of has comparisons to, to Ken Loach, his sort of style, um, and even like Andrea Arnold, that sort of way of filmmaking. But the comparison for me that sort of stands out a bit more is uh, Celine Sciamma's Girlhood, it's particularly um, the sort of correlations between those two films and the way that it shows and demonstrates the sort of like power of unity, as, as we were talking about, and the power of sort of teenage friendship, really, and really emphasises the sort of resilience of, of young girls who have sort of banded together in the face of what is effectively a like very real um, situation and very real adversity. And it does not at all in any way or form sort of shy away from this bleak reality of growing up as part of this broken what is effectively a broken social care system, but it does it without any sort of judgment, which I think is what really sells the film. Um, and no judgment of the people that that system fails, really. So while concentrating on that, it also shines this really beautiful light on those joyful moments of, of child, child, like childhood as well, even going through that sort of horrible experience. Um, and as I said, like those sort of performances from the core cast are all amazing. But the, the two main performances that really sort of sell it is um, the the lead, um, which her name I think is uh, Bukhi Bakri, and she gives this like amazing like powerhouse performance almost as as the the lead teenager called Rocks, um, and her younger brother is played by this really young boy called uh, D'Angelo Ose Casiedo, and he just plays it with like this incredible amount of charm and heart that even if you can't fully buy into the film which i don't expect a lot of people would but even if you can't you can just completely buy into the believability of his experience as this young child growing up around him and being mostly unaware of the the sort of bleak scenarios but that love between him and his sister and the friendship and the bonds around the 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 main character just really pull it together into a really powerful piece of cinema this year. And I was really surprised by it. It's, it's a great, great film. It's interesting, um, that thing about the, the bond between the characters. That's kind of how I reacted to it. I don't know if I, either of you have read Shuggy Bane, the Booker-winning uh, novel. Um, well, it, not yet. Well, I have to say that that's what I felt about that was, um, you know, if you really wanted to, you could probably, you know, dissect the writing. But the the strength of the characters and the bonds between the characters, particularly the mother and her children, um, you know, kind of. But that's for a different podcast. But it's interesting to hear you you saying about that. What was the name of the film again? Uh, Rocks, did you say? Rocks, yeah. And it's on Netflix. Excellent. Well, my second choice was also a film I saw at the Glasgow Film Festival, which was supposed to come out uh, on general release, but obviously didn't for obvious reasons. And it's Michael Caton Jones' Our Ladies, which is the uh, adaptation of Alan Warner's novel The Sopranos, which is one of my all-time favourite novels. And I 
was worried about this film for that very reason. But I needn't have bothered. It's a cracking film. And uh, for, for those who don't know, it's uh, mainly set in Edinburgh. You have this all-girls choir from Oban, although I don't think it's ever actually named, but that's kind of Warner's hometown and where a lot of his books are set. And they're going to Edinburgh for their kind of big day out. They're going for a competition, but actually they're going to visit the hotspots uh, of Edinburgh and hit the pubs and clubs and record shops. And, and you know, they need to get back home. Their, their target is to get back home for, um, oh, what's the name of the, it's the Man Trap. The Man Trap is the name of the club in, in where they're from. They've got to get back there because there are American, the rumour is there's American GIs are going to be there from across the water. Uh, and it's so the Kate and Jones manages to capture the kind of joy uh, and, and sadness of uh, Warner's original novel. It's a really sharp script. The performances are fantastic right across the board. And in fact, I am going to name the actresses because they certainly deserve it. It's Eve Austin, Tallulah Grieve, Abigail Laurie, Sally Messam, Rona Morrison, and Marley Sue, who I will talk about later as well. Um, it's riotous, it's it's poignant. Um, if you know the novel, uh, don't worry. It, it absolutely captures the heart and soul of it. And um, and there's some great, you know, I me mean, guys, I like a musical, and there's some great musical numbers in there too. Um, okay, Chris, what's your second uh, choice? Um, probably my favourite film of the year, uh, although technically I think it was released in the US at the tail end of last year, but it didn't get wide release there or here until January, so I'm claiming it for this one, is uh, Terence Malick's latest, The Hidden Life. Um, I know a lot of people have had their patience worn thin with Malick in the decades since uh, The Tree of Life. Um, since then, he's had maybe the most experimental 70s of any director <laughs> in since cinema. The he's, um, since the little dinosaurs, he's... Uh, yeah, yeah. He's kind of um, increasingly had little use for traditional narrative and has kind of occasionally taken it working without scripts to begin with, either just, you know, films, hours upon hours of footage and then kind of finds the shape of them in the editing room. So over the course of like To the Wonder, uh, Night of Cups and uh, Song to Song, I think he's kind of steadily whittled away a lot of his former audience, save for the, the diehards who have never quite lost the faith. Um, but this is the reward for sticking with him, I think. Like, I mean, I really like all three of those films, but uh, I know a lot of people really do not. Um, but it's a clear kind of culmination of his past decade. You know, you can see all the kind of techniques that he's kind of developed over the past 10 years in those films, all the kind of chances that he's taken, all the kind of risks he's taken. Um, kind of pay off and apply to a more traditional narrative structure. So he's working with a script again. He has a fairly traditional kind of structure to the story. It's based, like a lot of his earlier work is, on actual historical facts. So, you know, whether it's Badlands or um, Thin Red Line or The New World, you know, they're all kind of rooted in actual historical... Obviously, he takes liberties with it and does his own thing with it, but they're all rooted in actual kind of historical circumstances. Uh, this is based on the story of Franz Jägerstatter, who was an Austrian farmer um, in the late 30s, early 40s, who... Uh, refused to swear allegiance to Hitler when he was called up to the army in World War II. Um, and as a result of that was executed and became a martyr for the Catholic Church. He was a deeply religious guy um, and kind of clung to his convictions all the way through it. So despite the kind of intimidation from from high-ranking Nazis, but also the pressure from, you know, the fellow townspeople in the village that he and his family lived in, um, you know, by sticking to his principles, he then was recognised. He was kind of beatified by the church for after the fact. Um 
it's just a really it's staggering. It's really overwhelming. It's just a very powerful piece of work. Um, like Malik loves his kind of visions of Eden <laughs> kind of before the fall. And this is uh, the first 10 minutes of this or some of the most kind of ecstatic versions of that of his career, I think is just these unbelievable like panoramas of, you know, the Austrian mountains, you know, just kind of high up above the clouds and everything, just these incredible vistas. Um, and it really feels like this kind of ideal that you just know is going to be shattered. I mean, it's not quite the opening that's taking liberties. It opens, it actually opens with archive footage of kind of you know nazi pageantry and stuff you know there's stuff from kind of lenny riefenstahl kind of put in there other kind of archives so you kind of know obviously even if you even if you went in knowing nothing about franz jaeger star you kind of have a sense of where it's going right from the kind of opening minutes but um yeah so although it's kind of more narrative focused than his last few have been um it's still this very poetic um you know a lot of kind of disconnected stray moments that you probably that no other filmmaker would think to include um you know he's obviously very focused on kind of nature and the natural world and all of that plays into it as well and uh like use of classical music and um yeah and other just great performances as well um Jägerstar is played by August Deal who's probably best known to western audiences as one of the titular Inglorious Bastards in Tarantino's film um but he's there's a support cast of kind of Euro luminaries you know Michael Nyquist is it uh, Bruno Ganz it's actually the final credits for both of them before they died mm-hmm. um Jürgen Prochnow Matthias Schoenarts um so there's a lot of faces that people will probably recognize even if they don't know the names just from kind of supporting roles in various European and American films over the years um it's not your traditional kind of World War II film you know if you're going in looking for a kind of you know action scenes and uh you know Nazi bashing, you're probably not going to find it. Um, but it's 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 its own thing. It's the kind of film that only Terence Malick could make, I think. Um, um I don't know how many more you'll have in him because he's now, I think he turned 77 this week. So it's that way where you're like, you can't really turn your nose up at them while he's still putting them out, you know. I think it's the kind of thing that yeah, we're gonna miss them when they're gone and there aren't any more to have. Um, so it feels right to kind of cherish cherish them while we get them. But he did kind of lose a lot of people, I think, with his last few films. So that's interesting that uh, you feel this is a kind of... Um, would you see yeah, the performers? Is this, is this him rewarding those that have stuck? A bit like Lou Reed with Metal Machine Music, where he kind of lost loads of people and then he kind of gave them New York and it was a kind of... Yeah, I mean, I think like... Yeah, I, I mean, as I say, I really like the three films that seem to have lost him a lot of fans. Um, so I, I wouldn't call it a return of form because I don't think he's lost that form. Yeah. I think he's been trying something new. Yeah, I did avoid seeing the return of form. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That isn't for everyone and isn't to everyone's taste. But I would say definitely this is a reward for, for that if you've stuck with him. I mean, obviously, I think it could stand to bring people back in who have maybe lost touch with him over the past decade. So if you haven't enjoyed To the Wonder Night of Cups, um, song to song there is more stuff here that you'll recognize from like the new world um or the thin red line or whatever than okay. than those films you know so if that's the kind of era of malik that you like and you enjoy then and you don't have as much time for him after the tree of life then this is definitely a return to something not identical to that because as i say i think it's still very much informed by his past decade but definitely along similar enough lines that you would maybe be drawn back in by it um, but it definitely does feel like a reward. I think it's much more rewarding to watch having seen those films from the past decade as well and seeing the kind of the lessons that he's learned from that and knowing where these kind of new elements that he's putting into this have come from. You know, it's kind of like you've seen the kind of, again, I don't want to call them failed experiments, but you see kind of what he's been playing about with and the chances he's been taking in those and now how they apply in this kind of context. And I think that's a very rewarding thing to, to see happen. Sounds good. 
Wesley, your uh, second choice? Are we only on the second choices? I think we're on the second. <laughs> yes, we're getting there. Um, I'm also taking slight liberties in the sense that I'm going to also take you back to the end of 2019. Remember 2019? Remember? I was going to year? say, if any year you can take liberties, 2020, you can take liberties. <laughs> I'm going to put Jaws as one of mine later on. <laughs> um, I think the reason for this is I don't count it as a 2019 release. Very much there's always one film every year without fail. We do this podcast, something gets released in the last week of December. Yeah, yeah. And same when we did the music podcast as well, there was always an album that would sneak under the radar. And this one for me, I think it came out potentially Boxing Day or something like that, but um, was very much a January release in my mind. At least that's when I saw it uh, in the cinemas. Also remember them, um, which is Little Women. So Little Women for me. I'm obviously not going to summarise it. I think people know what a lot of women is and what it's about. Although that said... Uh, so I there's think, these women, right? And these women. They're quite little. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, having said all of that, I have literally never read the book, nor had I ever seen any sort of previous incarnations of... Oh, really? Okay. Story. I've never seen the Winona Ryder one back in the day. Yeah. There's, obviously, there's quite a few of them, and I've just never... I've never actually came across them. I've never sat down and watched them. Um, not for any reason, although it's just never sort of passed me by, but it's just passed, passed me by, really. But yeah, I went to this one because it's Greta Gerwig, who I really, really love and respect as a, as a sort of filmmaker, um, and also has the almost perfect modern cast, um, with one of my favourites and everyone's favourites, uh, Saoirse Ronan, of course. And, and I wasn't sure what to expect, really, but went in the cinema and it just blew me away, to be quite honest. Was completely swept up in the whole thing right from the very opening scene, like the atmosphere, the dialogue, the, the colours of it, just everything really. Uh, and, and speaking of the dialogue, actually, it, it felt really, felt really rhythmic and, and really natural, not stilted like you would, you know, usually expect from a lot of period pieces. Uh, yeah. It's like it's quite sardonic, it's quite witty, it's really, really contemporary. In fact, it's actually so contemporary that I actually had to. I actually thought that Greta Gerwig must have changed a lot of the dialogue, but was actually really surprised to find out that it's pretty much lifted from the book itself. Mm. Um, but what I did find out was that she wrote, uh, she wrote cues in the script for overlapping dialogue, which totally lifted it and just brought this entirely new energy to a story that's obviously been told many times before. Um, and I, while I've not got anything to compare it to, having not seen any of the ones before, it did not feel like... Um, what you would come to expect from that type of period piece. Uh, there was this was this sort of like deliberately ambiguous ending, which I really enjoyed, but that also was carried the whole way throughout the film. Um, there was this sort of like pairing throughout it that really sort of blurred the lines between um, Louisa May Alcott, the, the author of, of Little Women, and Joe March, the character, um, obviously the, the lead protagonist. I think the book itself was, and people will be more qualified than I am to talk about this, but I think it was believed to be partly biographical anyway. So Greta yeah, Gerwig sort of mimicked that. Yeah, um, that kind of makes sense because she mimicked that in the film quite a lot, actually. It was almost meta at, at parts. Um, for example, there was this scene in the film where, uh, where Joe says to, I think it's a, it's a French professor who like criticises the, the work she's written. And uh, she basically says to him, I can't afford to starve on this praise. Yeah. And I think that's actually taken from something that Louise, Louisa May Alcott had said after someone had written a piece critiquing one of her books. And there was this other moment as well where she negotiates uh, like 5 6% uh, and keeps sort of the copyright of the book. And again, that's something that Louisa May Alcott did as well. So 
Peter Gerwig was really careful to like bring out that part of Louise and Alcott's personality that lived through Joe and put it into the film as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was brilliant. It, it gave equal footing to almost all of the sort of sisters as well, which really allowed that amazing cast to sort of shine and make it their own. Like I'm a massive fan of Florence Pugh anyway, but even Emma Watson, who I generally struggle to get fully on board with as an actor at times, like she was also excellent. Uh, yeah, I mean, I also really liked how that, despite it being, funnily enough, a story about women, um, it can it can be easy, and I suppose a lot of people's approaches to allow the men in the story to take up a lot of space. But like Greta Gerwig just completely ensured that they just became almost dressing and sort of faded into the background. Again, which really helped the, the that incredible cast at the centre of it all just bring it all together. Um, I did hear a lot of the criticism that I heard about the film that was sort of levelled against it was that it was mainly to do with the sort of timeline jumping about and sort of interspersing all over the place and the pacing of it being quite confusing. But as I say, as someone who had never read the book, had never saw any previous adaptations of it, I sort of followed it from beginning to end and got really swept up in it. And yeah, it was it was a bit of a, bit of a surprise, despite liking the cast, despite liking the director. I wasn't sure if that was a story I was going to particularly enjoy. And I did, I loved it. And I haven't stopped thinking about it all year and it's it's great. Uh, I, I've seen that, and that is a it's a very good film, and I've kind of forgotten about it. Um, I'm afraid. My next one is another Scottish film, and it's called Run by Scott Graham. Uh, we did a podcast with him uh, at the film festival to talk about it, and uh, it is now Scott did Shell, which we've talked about in previous uh, podcasts, and he also did a film called Iona, which I only just got to see this year, um, but this is one that's very close to home from. It's set up in the northeast where he's from, and it's about kind of joyriders. Uh, there's, now what's the character's name? Finney is this guy who works in the local kind of fish gutting factory, and uh, but he obviously used to be the boy racer, and, you know, a lot of in the town where it's set, um, that's there's not much else to do. So people pimp up their cars and go and kind of hit the empty streets where there's, a few traffic lights to stop them. And his son's now into that. And of course, there's this real uh, rub up between the son and the, you know, who's kind of the promise of everything that's going to happen. And Finney, played brilliantly by Mark Stanley, who is kind of looking back and saying, well, where has my life gone? How come it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to do? And I think for a lot of people, they might have previously focused on the son. And it would have been a kind of almost an Oedipal thing, but they don't, they focus on the dad and he goes out and uh, he steals his son's car basically to go out for a joyride himself. So when he picks up uh, Marla Sue, who just talked about as being an Our Ladies, she thinks it's going to be the son, but actually it's the dad. And they kind of bond um, as they drive about. Uh, it's all done at night. You've got these neon lights. It's quite it's beautifully shot. And most of it is interior in the car, which um, Scott in the, the podcast talks about how they did it, but really intense and close and brilliant performances when the camera's clearly just there on people. Um, a, it's a real fast, vibrant film. If you get a chance to see it, you definitely should. I'm sure you'll be able to catch it online. I'm sure it must be available somewhere. Um, but it's called Run. It's by Scott Graham. And uh, yeah, it's a really... Uh, it's a film well worth uh, checking out because a lot, like a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, a lot of people will have missed it because it's either come or gone 
or it's never come in the first place. It's never been out in the first place. Uh, so, Chris, what's your third uh, choice? Uh, oh, what will I go for? What will I go for? I think I'll go for um, maybe the year's over two hundred films that you're going. Yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, maybe the year's most memed film, uh, Uncut Gems, the Safdie Brothers' uh, follow up to Good Time, which is one of the most stressful experiences I've ever had in the cinema. Um, it's, uh, it's, it got like, it's one of these ones like the Irishman last year that got our marriage story that got like a kind of weak run at the GFT and then went to Netflix. Um, but I think like, I think something that this year has demonstrated is when you don't have that kind of, kind of fanfare of a theatrical run, a lot of really good stuff can just end up falling by the wayside because it's just another piece of content that gets released on Netflix and kind of gets subsumed by, you know, oh, every day there's something new. Um, I think I've seen that happen with even something like, like Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which came out over the summer and was great, really great piece of work. But again, it feels like even a few months later, it hasn't lived on in the cultural memory the same way that like, you know, Uncut Gems or, or uh, The Irishman or Mary Story or whatever has. I feel like you still see them being referenced really regularly online, you know, on Twitter or whatever. Um, but Uncut Gems is like... Um, set in New York's Diamond District uh, in the early 2010s. It is a period piece for reasons that I think really only have to do with the people that they got to be in it. So amongst the supporting cast are Kevin Garnett, a basketball player, an American NBA player, and The Weeknd um, playing themselves um, and completely and in ways that feel completely natural, which is kind of an amazing thing as well. It doesn't feel like they're forced into it or anything that doesn't feel like they're you know they've been shoehorned in in ways that are completely unnatural that, or that they wouldn't be part of this story you just kind of go along with it and think yeah this absolutely makes sense but um stars adam sandler in one of his semi-regular um dramatic turns you know uh, he has great form as a dramatic actor obviously you know punch drunk love um and spanglish funny people like he's shown in the past that he when he commits he can do like a proper you know dramatic performance and be great at it and no, um yeah. yeah of course yeah yeah an equally stressful experience to sit through um in this one he plays uh howard ratner who is uh, a jeweler in the diamond district um with a kind of propensity for making uh big bets that he maybe shouldn't and taking chances that he shouldn't and um he crosses paths with Kevin Garnett, the NBA player, uh, just as he's taking possession of a r- very rare uncut Ethiopian gem, a, a diamond, a, a black diamond. Um, and Kevin Garnett becomes convinced that it's going to be a good luck charm for him and decides that he needs to have it. And complications ensue. Uh, Adam Sandler's in debt to a few kind of gangland figures. Uh, his domestic situation is coming ahead. He's going to separate from his wife, uh, eminently. And, um, yeah, he has a, a younger mistress on the side who is also kind of semi-involved with the weekend, and it's uh, it just it's one bad decision after another. <laughs> it's, it's you spend the entire film going, no, wait, why, why are you doing this? No, just don't, just just walk away from this. Just you know, just do something different with your life. Just say no for once, and it just never happens, and it, it gets this kind of hooks into you and never gives up for the full two hours is. Like it's a great film to see with an audience. I'm really glad I saw it at the GFT because it's the it gets visceral reactions from people. You can hear people gasping. You can hear people shouting no. You can hear people, you know, just like falling off their seats, just kind of cringing and be like, no, don't do this, don't do this. Um, but it, yeah, it plays an audience like a fiddle, and it is. 
I, I don't know if I can recommend it wholeheartedly to Adam Sandler fans because it might not be something that they're, that they're expecting. We deserve that to get. But yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, like really, really great. Again, a great cast all the way down, you know, like Julia Fox, Adina Menzel, Keith Stanfield. Um, the music by Daniel Lopatin, 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 who uh, better known as One O Tricks Point Never, um, and uh, they also put up an accompanying kind of short film online as well called Goldman v Silverman, which is a lot of fun. It's not the same characters, but it's set in the same kind of milieu, and Sandler is also in it, so that's that's worth seeking out if you get a chance. Um, but yeah, uh, just one of the one of the last kind of great theatrical cinematic experiences i can think where you you know you have that kind of atmosphere in the cinema where absolutely everybody is so heavily invested in it um and yeah it, it really carries that kind of charge i don't again i haven't watched it since then so i don't know how that translates to home viewing experience yeah, where you can just pause it at any time and, and it's probably one of those ones that it might not you might not have had the same where it shows you that despite what we were saying earlier on the role of audiences is still going to be very important i think for certain releases anyway Wesley, what's your third uh, choice we have? Well, I can actually say quite nicely from that because one of my choices was also Uncut Gems. And interestingly, what you were discussing there, I didn't see it in the cinema. I did see it. Um, I did watch it at home on Netflix. I think when it came out at the time, I had the choice between seeing this in the cinema or um, the the Sam Mendes Vanity Project that was 1917, and sadly chose the latter. Uh, so had to make do with watching it at home on, on Netflix. And a lot of the points that Chris was talking about there in terms of the anxiety stuff, I, I loved Uncut Gems, by the way. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I didn't like get the sort of whole build-up of anxiety that everyone else did, which I think is probably the factor of watching it at home. Yeah. Although the anxiety I did feel watching it, I think, was stemmed from exactly what Chris said in the sense of watching all of these characters making some horrendous life choices. That was where the anxiety stemmed from me. But it was brilliant. Like, I, I could almost, like, not... I was going to say I could almost weirdly relate to it. I should probably pick a bit of ton of face <laughs> in terms of relating to characters from Uncut Gems. But in the sense of it was just such a very visceral and real film. Like, I felt like a lot of the characters that were in it were really true to life, having also never actually been and lived in New York and known those type of characters. I mean, I've got a friend from, from Long Island who, who lives in New York, New York and, and she tells me that she actually believes a lot of those characters are quite caricatures of people and not actually that true to life. But to me, even from being back home in Glasgow, I worked in the gambling industry for years and I've seen people like that who have you know just lost everything and just have put so much into something that's just so against them and seeing the other parts of their life and how that sort of falls apart is just infuriating and heartbreaking and um yeah it's a great film so that was one of my other choices but that said I think that can lead me on to quite nicely talking about a sort of smaller film maybe it wasn't in my top five but it was actually something that was quite quite good um quite quite enjoyable in the sense that I didn't expect. I didn't know what to expect from it. So it's called uh, "Take Me Somewhere Nice," and it's by a director who I've written down here. And I'm going to read off the screen because I can't yep. remember her name. I think it's Enya Sendejarovic. Um, I think it was our directorial and uh, debut as well. But essentially, it's about a, a Bosnian teenager uh, living in the Netherlands with her mum, who finds out that um, her dad, who I think left before she was born or, or when she was really young is uh, six, so she travels back to Bosnia to, to see him for the first time. And essentially it's a, a coming-of-age road trip film, really, that sort of 
how to put it, like focuses on the, the sexual awakening of its like kind of lead character. It's really Jim Jamush in a lot of ways, but with um, some really great bulk and humour in it. Um, and I sort of it sat with me for a little while. And I didn't think it was like the best film I'd seen by any means or anything like that, but I sort of mulled over what it was trying to say. And I think in the end, it all came down to everything to do with identity, whether it's sexual identity, national identity, um, identity of, of self and of place. Um, it's also got a lot to say in the sort of complex history of Bosnia as well, but a lot of that went like ignorantly over my head. But what was really obvious throughout it was a sort of sense of otherness. Um, she felt, the lead character, she felt othered at home when she was in the Netherlands because of her Bosnian heritage. But then as she goes to Bosnia, she's really guilty of sort of trying to um, other the Bosnians because she feels European. Um, it's just a really, really interesting way of, of looking at this sort of scenario. And what I really liked most about it was that it, it didn't feel the need to sort of justify the, the lead character's um, actions or choices, of which there are a lot of terrible ones in there. Um, I mean, it's like being a teenager, I suppose, and discovering your, your sexual identity, your, your sort of identity generally is just really complicated and contradictory and a very, very messy process. So rather than tie it all up nicely with this sort of, you know, bow of mm. like morality, it sort of chose to bask in those bad decisions, if you like, and really explore that journey that the character went on, which I just thought was really, really refreshing, especially as there can be like this huge weight of expectation placed on the shoulders of teenage girls and teenage girl characters in, in cinema, always expecting them to make the right choices and the, the way it played out was just was just really great. I really, really enjoyed it. It was very slow and it had to sit with me for a while, but gradually sort of went up my estimations longer and logged over it. And yeah. the cinematography was good to a point. It got a bit repetitive after a while, but um, beautiful colour palette throughout it. Locations were amazing. And all in all, it was just a really accomplished debut, although I was quite disappointed that there was a with the film title obviously being Take Me Somewhere Nice, that was a really big missed opportunity for some Mogwai in there. I mean, they didn't use that, but maybe that was too on the nose. But it was a really, really, that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it was really a really sort of surprising little debut, and I quite enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing what she, she does next. Excellent. Well, my fourth choice is Peter Mackie Burns' Rialto. And again, we spoke previously about Daphne, which he had, which was really a kind of critical hit um, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I think. I think that must be right. And so this is his next one. It's set in uh, Dublin. Uh, you get a character called Com, who uh, is in his kind of midlife and uh, is doing all right. A managerial job in Dublin's docks. He's got two kids and wife. And then his dad dies and uh, he just kind of falls apart. He starts drinking heavily. He picks up a boy in a, um, a shopping, in the toilets of a shopping centre, starts a relationship with him. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's almost deliberate self-destruction. But the great thing is uh, the director never tries to justify anything or explain. He just kind of shows this behaviour and make, leaves you to, to um, make up your own decisions and why Com's life is going the way it's going. Um, it's absolutely gorgeous in terms of the way it's shot. I mean, most of the time Dublin is lit up with a blue sky and every time I've been to Dublin, I've never seen it like that. But uh, And there's also a lot of colour theme going on. I'm not entirely sure. I did ask him at a Q&A when we went to see the film. But, you know, there's there's rooms, uh, there's yellows and I think greens and blues. And it's a deliberate choice, uh, kind of setting the moods almost um, 
a without you knowing it, without the the, the viewer uh, knowing it. Um, it's a fantastic uh, performances all round and um, really moving film. And I say at the heart of it is this a bit like with Daphne. There's no judgment. There's no rush to say this is bad or this is good. It's just like these are some people's lives and we're going to put the camera on it. Okay, it's drama, it's um, fiction, if you like, but we're going to show this as it is. And I, it's a very, very moving film. Um, yeah, it's called Rialto. It's by Peter Mackie Burns. And I think it did get a release, so you should be able to see it um, somewhere. Okay, so uh, my fourth is uh, Dick Johnson's Dead, which is uh, released through Netflix again. It's another one that um, I think we'd probably have had a fairly robust theatrical rollout were it not for the current situation um but again because of it just being dumped on netflix i worry that it's one that a lot of people maybe haven't seen or heard of um that maybe should have had more fanfare because it's absolutely one of the best things i've seen all year um so it's directed by kirsten johnson who um made camera person which came out a few years ago really acclaimed documentary she is a um, by trade a, a documentary cinematographer and camera person was a kind of assemblage of B-roll of kind of outtakes from films that she'd shot uh, of footage that hadn't made it into the final cut um, that kind of revealed what life was like for her kind of going into war zones and other kind of fraught situations, um, you know, shooting the footage that, that she brought back. And this one is more, uh, much more domestic and much more kind of focused on home and self. It's uh, about her dad, Dick Johnson. So again, like I know the title Dick Johnson is dead is probably conjuring kind of images in people's heads of what this film is. Maybe it's some kind of like cheeky post Tarantino, like caper or something like that. Um, but Dick Johnson is actually his name. Uh, it's the name of her father, uh, who is a retired psychiatrist. Um, and he is diagnosed. He's in the early stages of Alzheimer's and uh, her mother died of it, I think um, about 15 years previously. And, to kind of prepare for the inevitable uh, for him and for her and the rest of their family. Um, she decides to basically stage his death in a variety of ways, um, kind of kind of in comical ways, you know, like some of them are more straightforward, but there's also ones where like an air conditioner falling on him, um, you know, out of a building, there's, you know, he walks onto a building site and gets hit by a plank with a nail in it accidentally, you know, so it's kind of quite outlandish stuff. Um, but they stage it for the camera. She gets like stunt people involved and, you know, it's just a way of seeing her father die over and over again as a way of kind of helping her process it, helping him process it. They even stage like a funeral for him where he's in the casket and he can hear, you know, everything people are saying about him. Um, and it's just a really lovely film. It's just really like, despite the kind of potentially grim subject matter, it's just really uplifting, really moving. Um, again, it's that thing of like, you know, people waiting until someone's dead to say loads of nice things about them it's just very it's just very moving to see him getting a hero of this about himself before he goes and kind of be be assured that he will be missed and you know um that he has made a difference to the lives of the people around them um and it's yeah it's uh it's funny it's bleak it's sad it's it's moving it's but it's it's everything all at once it's just wow. really i hope that it does find an audience and it doesn't just slip through the cracks entirely because it's, it's a really lovely, lovely piece of work. And um, yeah, I'm just very excited to see where, where Kirsten Johnson goes from here because those are two very different films <laughs> from each other. Um, and yeah, she's, it, it's that way where like, it almost doesn't feel, it feels more apt to call it non-fiction than a documentary because it's not really documenting anything as such. You know, it's not like, 
it is kind of a quite artificial situation. That, I mean, obviously he does actually have Alzheimer's, but everything else is kind of staged for the camera. So it's more kind of a, using that kind of nonfiction framework as a way of, you know, talking about death and kind of cultural acceptance of it and all of this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, very, very highly recommended. And, sorry, what was the name of it again? So- yeah, Dick Johnson is dead. Oh, cool, excellent. Okay, Wesley, time for your uh, fourth choice. Yeah, so I think I'll... I'll just go out there with what I think is my favourite film of the year um, so far, not much left of it, is um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is the film by Celine Sciamma, um, who, again, I mentioned Girlhood earlier on. It's the same director of, of that film. She also did Water Lilies, uh, Tomboy. She's a very accomplished filmmaker. She is making lots of sort of waves um, and getting lots of really great reviews and lots of films. But this one, I think, really, really took it up a notch. So anyone who hasn't seen it, it is set on a remote island in, I think, Brittany uh, at the end of the 18th century. Um, a painter, uh, is, she is commissioned to paint a wedding portrait of, of another young woman as, I think it's as a gift to the stranger, basically, in Milan, who, who she'd been married off to. And it follows the sort of dynamics between those two people on this really remote island and how their relationship and their, their love develops um, over a period of time. Um, I don't feel like I can go into too much detail on that I feel, for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, I'd really like to leave it to people who are way more qualified than me to pick this film apart and completely get to the bottom of its, its depth and its beauty. But it is sort of up there is with sort of the pinnacle of modern cinema, I think, with the way that it all comes together and it's just incredibly rich and sumptuous and just so beautiful yet utterly heart-wrenching. It's also been sort of like a while since I've watched it and I didn't mean to watch it again before this, but um, there's lots of different themes and layers in the film that go way over my head, but I'm not really sure that matters, I think, because at its heart, it's just this really sort of bittersweet celebration of... um, of art and love and art in its sort of purest form with this really great love story at the centre of it all. Um, there's been lots of commentary on how the female gaze element of it is really, really important to, to cinema um, and a film and a genre as well. It's really dominated by, by obviously male gaze quite a lot, but it just looks absolutely stunning for a start. I just don't think my eyes have ever been happier watching a film. Um, not a whole lot happens right up until probably one of the most remarkable scenes I've seen in ages in the film, which is a scene around the bonfire and it's glowing as they sort of walk around and the sort of love develops and there's this incredible piece of music playing which just kicks the whole film up a notch and I think it's got lyrics which were actually written by Celine Sciamma in Latin as well, which all sounds a bit wanky, but it's, it actually just looks beautiful when it all comes together and it really sort of emotes lots of different things and sort of elevates it to this otherworldly type of film and it's got this sort of imagery of witchcraft, but also the, this connection between love and art, and it's just extremely powerful. And I think it's what's so remarkable, so remarkable about it is it's one of those films that that you think looks simple, um, but to create something that simple just requires an absolute mastery of cinema. And yeah, it's it's really great, and I can't wait to watch it again. Excellent. And what was that one called? Just so that people don't forget. Yeah, it was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Excellent. So my choice. Sorry, Chris. What were you saying? That's the last film I saw in a cinema. Ah. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? Not as much as Wesley. We'll <laughs> <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> okay. So we're down to our fifth uh, choice, uh, and 
I'm going to go another film I saw at the Glasgow Film Festival. Now, every now and again, you kind of look at the, the what's coming and you think, yeah, go and see that, go and see that. But sometimes you're asked, would you like to do, well, I was asked, would you like to do an interview with um, a someone who, you know, you don't know anything about them. And it's a, a director called Josh David Gordon. The film's called This World Won't Break. It's an American uh, movie. Um, now, we all love our music, and it's absolutely steeped in music. Um, it's set in the south of America, and you've got this musician. Oh, I'm trying to remember his name while I'm talking because he is a real musician. And he basically is um, enthralled to the blues music that went before and he kind of feels he almost has to live that life to tap into the music. So he's drinking too much, he's um, womanizing, he's kind of a real mess. But he thinks, yeah, actually, that's the way that you have to behave uh, to kind of, um, you know, get that way. Greg Schroeder is the name of the, the guy who plays the lead and is nearly in kind of every scene. It's got a feel of um, a... You mentioned Jim Jarmusch. It's got a feel of uh, Jim Jarmusch. Um, it's got a, a kind of Twin Peaksy vibe to it at times. Um, you're never quite sure that, uh, without, without going full Lynch, you're never quite sure uh, um, what he's is real, what's imagined, what's a kind of fever dream. Um, he meets these odd characters along the way, which is kind of very Lynchian and Jarmuschian. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I loved it. The music's fantastic. Soundtrack's fantastic. It's got an ending that you don't see coming at all. It totally sideswipes you. And um, it was a real pleasure to talk to uh, uh, the folk involved with it um, who just were, had made this film. I think they'd used all their money to make this film. It doesn't look like a small indie film. It looks really lovely, but they were just so proud of it and they were taking it you know, around the world or, or until they couldn't anymore to, to kind of spread the word. It's called This World Won't Break. And if you're looking for something with a bit of music um, in it, then, yeah, I think you should check it out. The director's Josh David Gordon. Sounds brilliant. Yeah, really good. Um, Chris, your final choice. I mean, oh, I'm going to have to try and narrow, do this, narrow David. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like I can't quite say small acts yet because we're still only at the time of recording we're still only three-fifths of the way through that's Steve McQueen's series of films which are being shown on consecutive Sundays on uh, BBC just now so we've only actually had three of the five in total so that might have to wait for next year although out of those three I would highly recommend Lovers Rock in particular as, as a high point of the year I think it's maybe the, thing, maybe the single best thing Steve McQueen's ever done um so I think instead I'm going to give my fifth spot to a couple of short films because, you know, like short films, you know, they don't take up as much room as feature length films. So I can feel yeah, like yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> um, one of them, actually, I won't spend much time talking about because it it's a director I've talked about plenty on this podcast before. is uh, Don Hertzfeld, who uh, made It's Such a Beautiful Day, which I think I named my favourite film of the decade this time last year. Um, his latest short, uh, the third in his World of Tomorrow series, which is a kind of sci-fi uh, series. Um, this, this is episode three, The Absent Destinations of David Prime, which is double the length of the first installment. They've gradually got longer as they've gone on. So this is a full, I think, like 36 minutes. Um, it won't mean much if you haven't seen the first two parts. It kind of goes back and kind of re-interrogates plot elements from the first couple. The, the setup for the first one is that a very young girl, like about four or five years old, is visited by 
a clone of her future self <laughs> to kind of give um, a vision of the future in about 200 years time. Um, and it's uh, all, all three of them are incredible, but they kind of bring in elements. So like they work on so many different things. They're like hilarious comedies. They're visionary sci-fi. They're unbelievably moving kind of meditations on the human condition. They're like, there's so much going on, so much crammed in. It's such a condensed amount of time and all of them. They're visually spectacular. Like the, the design work on them is incredible. Um, and all still mostly made by Hertzfeld himself. You know, he, he writes them, he directs them, he animates them. I think he's been able to expand his crew slightly the more he's gone along, but he still like kind of funds them all himself as well, you know, and, and is, um, is still more or less entirely independent working out of, working out of Texas, just kind of under his own ages. Um, and yeah, you can rent that from Vimeo currently. Um, and it's highly recommended. Although, as I say, I wouldn't go into it without having seen the first two parts, but you'll be able to get through all three of them in the space of about an hour, not much over that. Um, highly recommend that you do. But the other short that I want to draw attention to is actually a Scottish film. And again, one of the best films I think I've seen all year is uh, Boys Night by James Price, right. which um, showed as part of the the online, the virtual edition of the Glasgow Short Film Festival, which played this year, and had a lot of really great shorts in it, um, not just homegrown stuff, the really great programme from all over the place. Um, but Boys Night in particular, it was, I think it won the Audience Award, and it was richly deserved, because I think it's honestly one of the best depictions of Glasgow I've ever seen put on screen. It's only 16 minutes long. Um, and it's, again, like a few of the films we've talked about today, kind of largely autobiographical, I think. So James Price has, he's made a few shorts already so far. Um, he hasn't directed a feature or anything yet, but I think anybody who's been keeping an eye on kind of Scottish filmmaking over the last few years will probably have encountered some of his work along the way. Um, but this one is set um, in the northeast of the city. So it starts in, in a car with like a young boy and a couple of parents and the dad is drunk and the parents are having a blazing row and the dad accidentally smashes the window of the car and the mother stops the car and says right get out you're walking home and he gestures to the wee boy and is like you coming with me kind of thing and she's like don't you go with him and the wee boy's like I'll make sure he gets home safe the boy's about like maybe 11 or 12 and so it just becomes about following the pair of them trying to make their way home through the northeast of the city to Dundasvale Court you know, the, the block of flats just at Cowcaddens yeah. um, over the course of a night and it's amazing it's really really great like oh, Price cool. wrote, it, wrote and directed it and it's so funny and so sharp and so kind of raw emotionally and uh, again it's, it's that way of covering like the entire gamut of emotions and everything that you could want from a film condensed into this really tight 15 minutes there's so much incident in it but it still they never feels overwhelmed by it it's got room everything's got room to breathe and um, the characters are so well drawn um and it's just it'll feel so familiar in a way that you don't see that often on screen for anybody that knows Glasgow at all like it's really I don't want to say uncanny but it, it feels like it's very precisely it, it's like it's a Glasgow film the way that like Wesley you were saying you maybe got the sense that Uncut Gems was like a New York film you know it's like there, there's maybe an element of exaggeration in it but in a way that feels very true to the city and um true to people's own experiences of it um i cannot recommend it enough i think that's another i think it might actually be free to stream on vimeo just now but right. if you have a search for if you just google like boys night james price you'll find it hopefully and it's um it's yeah absolutely staggering piece of work really really loved it i'm gonna check that out tonight that sounds great wesley your fifth and final choice ah uh, where to go where to go um I think we're in the territory now of a lot of films that I found quite interesting but maybe didn't reach the sort of peak of well actually no let's go with 
I wasn't going to talk about this film because I felt like it speaks for itself. It's been spoken about all year. Um, but, I mean, let's, let's just go there. It's, I think it's sort of, it's quite a nice symbol of, of the sort of crossroads that cinema's at at the moment. Um, but Parasite, I mean, what is there to say in Parasite that hasn't already been said, I suppose? Not really much, but, um, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the plot itself, again, I'm not going to go into too much of the detail of the plot because it is a film that deserves to go in unknown, but um, as I'm sort of talking through, if anyone hasn't seen it, they'll get the gist of it, but it's it's great. It's just an absolutely brilliant piece of cinema. That It's obviously, it's a Korean film. It's by um, director Bong Joon-ho, who has done Snowpiercer in the past and, and some other films. And yeah, what really carries it, apart from the incredible direction, is that the acting is just undoubtedly terrific. It's brilliant. Excellent comedic timing throughout it. It's quite a dark, um, dark humour running all the way throughout it. But what I think is really impressive about it is that it's just this really hugely fun, entertaining, even popcorn at times sort of suspense story with huge mainstream appeal, um, as is obviously evident by the, the awards it's won and the sort of the way that it's sort of permeated culture as the years went on. Uh, yeah, so it's it's all of that, but it's also got this sort of at times kind of scathing social satire throughout it and retains these art house aesthetics as well. And I think personally it'll be quite a long time before we get another film that really strikes that balance so so perfectly. Um, the themes throughout it and the sort of social commentary, while they are astute, um, I wouldn't say that it's anything groundbreaking on you. It's these sort of themes of social class um, are quite prevalent in a lot of really excellent uh, Korean films as well. Um, but what is probably new about its approach, or at least not new, but what elevates it above the rest is the sort of way that it weaves all of these these sort of threads together and um, and packages it all up and delivers it into to what it is. Um, it is kind of little with kind of heavy-handed metaphors throughout it, but it's really self-aware and it's got all this dark humour in it, as I said. Um, I also felt like interestingly it was quite similar to to jordan peele's us in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, which i think we touched on in a previous previous year's podcast um there's these sort of metaphors of the sort of subterranean underclass if you like and the huge um social inequalities that are at play in western society and and the developed world as well um, and it sort of made me retrospectively appreciate us um a little bit more because well enjoyed that at the time i've had some reservations about it um but yeah, obviously, I mean, the Oscars is not something that, as much as I get swept up in the whole sort of Oscars thing, it's not something I try to care about in terms of who wins what film because it doesn't really make much significance. But I cannot be more delighted that this won the Best Picture. Um, it just really shows how accessible foreign film can be when it's given the chance in such a big way. And obviously, it pissed off Donald Trump, which is great. Um, but I think there's this sort of I think you could probably make an argument that there are plenty of foreign films in previous years that are far better films than Parasite, but I don't personally think it's an argument that really needs to be had because while it's not the most groundbreaking film, it's this huge step towards like a wider appreciation of um, foreign cinema. And I think it will do wonders for just helping people sort of access that and, and watch more of it and what... Bong Joon-ho himself refers to, I think, is the something like the, the one-inch tall subtitle barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that that's just sort of, I've seen that filter through lots of people watching this film, that 
that maybe would not have interacted with with foreign cinema before I found that a bit of a barrier um, and just sort of took it in and, and really loved it. Um, I think it's been a really excellent um, and sort of heartwarming highlight the success that it's been given this year and has been a really, really great part of 2020, despite there not being much of it. There was a, there was a move to that um, maybe about 15 years ago when you had Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and... Uh, the, 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 I can't remember the name of the other stuff, but um, 2046, I think, was another one. But it, that people were really interested in. They didn't seem to mind too much that there was subtitles there, but that seemed to die off a bit. So it's great, I think, that it's maybe pushing back a little bit, that you're getting more world cinema that is becoming mainstream, for want of a better word. Definitely, yeah. Well, guys, that's a five. I think we get time. I'm going to push, throw this on you at the last minute, but I'll go first so you can have a think about it. Because we have been watching a lot of stuff on the small screen, and I'm going to talk about something that was made for TV. Um, and so if you can have a wee think about your highlight television-wise, new stuff, then that would be great. Because I'm going to talk about Darren Herscher's Man, which was made for BBC Scotland, which is up for a Scottish BAFTA um, this year. And uh, Darren um, had done uh, documentaries on Sight Hill, and I think one the Castle was another one. And this time he was looking at pigeon flyers. Do men are the pigeon flyers. Anyone who's been in the west coast of Scotland will have seen these weird monoliths built out of corrugated iron and wood, yeah. which are pigeon lofts, do cuts. And uh, uh, down in, he uh, goes down to Greenock in Port Glasgow, where it's a, still a kind of big thing, and spends time with uh, particularly one guy, but with a few of the do men who are flying their birds and are obsessed, I mean, really obsessed with them. And so much that it can be detrimental to their health. If you've never heard of um, do lung, then I'm afraid that's a thing. And uh, um, it's but it's really about as all his films are. They're about the the individuals and the the lives that they have, and um, how sometimes these small joys can overshadow a lot of the other um, hardships that they have. It's a really beautiful film. It's. Um, it's a film that I know that people that have watched it outside of the West Coast of Scotland, and even in the West Coast of Scotland, needed the subtitles on because the language is very um, a local, put it that way. Uh, but it's uh, it's got, as like you were saying, to a lot of these films, there's laughs and there's tears and there's um, kids singing uh, from Hamilton, which I wasn't expecting. And uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's, it's, I don't know if it's still on iPlayer, but it will be coming around again. And it's called Do Man, and it, Darren Hersher is the filmmaker. Chris, do you have a highlight of... I should have said this before you mentioned Steve McQueen. But... Yeah, I think that would probably be it, because I honestly, I honestly don't watch a lot of TV, <laughs> new TV as it comes out. I'm so much more uh, focused on film. So, yeah, I guess I'll go into more depth on, on Steve McQueen then. On, yeah, uh, on as but... you say, the three of them have been out. And they've yeah. all been excellent. Yeah, and they've all been quite different from each other as well. So uh, the first Mangrove is about a kind of uh, a maybe lesser known court case in, in British legal history where or one that's kind of been maybe purposely forgotten about by a lot of people um, about the Mangrove Nine who were kind of arrested. It was The Mangrove was kind of a community restaurant in London that all of it, so you'd maybe say as well, Small Axe, the kind of focus of Small Axe is the kind of Afro-Caribbean community in London. So it's, it's a very specific kind of cultural community that's maybe even underrepresented in terms of like you know uh left out of you know british history in a lot of ways in terms of its representation on screen so it's kind of aiming to be a kind of corrective to that um 
I think that kind of sense of community is one of the great strengths of it so far. And I think that's something that's maybe been missing from a lot of Steve McQueen stuff in the past is that they can be so overwhelmingly bleak <laughs> and um, kind of oppressive. You know, like there's a lot of focus on kind of um, bodies and physicality in his films, but in a way that, you know, whether it's kind of, uh, it's usually quite abusive, you know, it's like whether it's uh, the guards kind of given out to, to Bobby Sands and hunger or, you know, the kind of portrait of sex addiction and shame or obviously of slavery and 12 years a slave uh, or this kind of ever-present threat of violence and widows. Um, whereas in small acts, it's kind of transmuted into something a bit more joyful, you know, it's like, it's about people being there for each other and this kind of tactility of experience, you know, especially in Lover's Rock, which is set over one night at a house party, you know, with a sound system set up. And it's so much about like hands on shoulders and, you know, dancing and just kind of being in a room with other people. All that um, stuff that we can't do at the moment. Exactly. Which is maybe why it's hitting so hard this year, but it's, um, yeah, I, I feel like all three of the films, although like obviously covering, again, a range of subjects, like Lover's Rock is the kind of the only kind of outright kind of joyful of the three of them so far, I would say, or the one that's the most, yeah, obviously, yeah. no kind of elements of threat around the edges, but they still, is, it feels like the most overwhelmingly positive of them because it is, you know, it's a party. Um, so that's naturally going to be, be the case. Um, but in all three of them, you get this real sense of kind of like of, the, the strength of community and the kind of solace and comfort that you can take from from community um which is something that i don't think mcqueen's ever really focused on before it's usually always kind of been about the struggles of one person um in a particular kind of system um widows kind of broadened out to be more kind of about like the city as a whole or whatever or you know com communities within the city but even then it was more kind of a, an us against them kind of thing it wasn't really set off as a kind of like finding joy amongst your peers or whatever um but all three of them so far have had an element of that. So the first one is about, um, yeah, protesters who were arrested for peacefully kind of marching um, against racism in, in London, against like racist policing in particular and heavy handed tactics that were employed um, centered around this, this restaurant, the Mangrove in London. Lover's Rock, as I said, set uh, over one night at a house party, young people kind of gathering because like, again, the ever-present threat of racism made actually like going out for nights out quite, you know, difficult in a lot of ways. So a lot of that ended up being focused on the house parties with these big, you know, kind of sound system setups. Um, there's just some incredible moments with it, you know, like when Kung Fu fighting starts in and they all kind of assume their poses, you know, and start kind of dancing in, in ways that feel like they must have been choreographed, but also feel really kind of spontaneous and joyful. Or the, this kind of stunning sequence, I think, is the one that everybody will remember from this where um, Janet case silly games comes yeah. on and then the music to our ears like drops out entirely and you're left in an entire room of people singing along the acapella um which is just such a stunning effect um and also augmented by the fact that they actually have dennis bovell who produced and wrote the song like in the cast and um, so he's in the room for it too um and then the third one red white and blue is um a cop played by john boyega um, or I should say a cop in training played by John Boyega who decides to go through the system um, and try and change police force from within and try to, to an extent, cure it of its racism um, after his, his own dad's assaulted by cops, again, racist cops. Um, and I think like I think the interesting thing about it is funny when you're saying the like name kind of TV things of the year, because I think this year in particular, the kind of line between what counts as TV and what counts as a film is kind of blurred because none of us can actually get to cinemas. So even the stuff that we would usually class as films, we're watching through our TVs, we're watching on Netflix or any of the other kind of myriad streaming services that you have now. Yeah. And Small Axe is one that is 
funded by the BBC and shown on the BBC on consecutive weeks, but at the same time, all of them premiered at festival. You know, they were meant to be playing at Cannes this year. They played at the New York Film Festival. Um, they're all self-contained films. Like, there's no real through lines other than that kind of sense of community. Um, and it's, so, it's, so it's interesting to think about, like, kind of, you know, what, what these classifications actually mean now, you know, if they mean anything. Because um, I, I wouldn't classify small acts as TV. But I think all of them feel, they all feel like proper theatrically released films to me. They, they don't feel like made for TV movies, certainly by the kind of standard of what we think of when we think of TV movies. You know, they, these are all things they could play in a cinema and nobody would bat an eyelid. Yeah, and uh, it's not the money spent on them because there's plenty, like, for instance, say something like Dark Materials, which has clearly had a lot of money spent on it, but it does still feel like a tele series. Whereas I think you're right, Small Arts feels like one-off dramas that, that could easily uh, have been in cinemas. I think the, the, the distinction for me, I've been thinking this as well, watching other shows throughout the year, because I've also been catching up on Mindhunter this year, which I'd never previously seen, which is the show that David Fincher, exec produced for Netflix. He directed a few episodes himself as well. And other filmmakers like Andrew Dominic, uh, um, Carl Franklin, um, Asif Kapadia have all directed episodes of it too. So, you know, like a kind of quite heavy hitting behind the scenes creative team. Um, I think it's it's a show that reminds me of um, The Nick with Steven Soderbergh, which he directed every episode of uh, like maybe about five, six years ago um, in the sense that it is, it's rare, I think, for TV where the filmmaking overwhelms the writing. Like, I don't think that either Mindhunter or The Nick are particularly well-written shows, but they're com- both completely elevated by the kind of creative sensibilities of the, the filmmakers behind the camera. So you have these like incredible sequences that Fincher is able to put together, you know, of tension or whatever kind of effect that he wants to provide. That's at a level that you don't necessarily associate with TV shows. Yeah. Um, you would maybe more associate with that kind of communal experience of like seeing something in a cinema. Like the opening sequence of Mindhunter season two is this unbelievable scene set to In Every Dream Home a Heartache by Roxy Music. And it's just so rare. Like, you think back of like great TV moments, it's so rare to think of one that's just scored entirely by a song. You know, that just feels like so, like the kind of sequence that you just in your mind think of as cinematic. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's out on Netflix. So do you even call it TV as a streaming service? It's this kind of nebulous, like third way that you watch through your TV, but as you know, it's all this kind of thing. So, yeah. And uh, I just for a moment there, Chris, I thought you were referring to Mindhorn starring Julian Barrett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the same thing at all. No. Do you have, before we finish, do you have a television uh, recommendation for us? Or, or, or streaming, whatever you like. No, yeah, I do. I think the TV main TV event for me this year had to be um, "I May Destroy You," which was oh, one of the yes, best. Good show. Yeah, one of the best TV series I've seen in a long, long time. Again, it's something that's very much um, permeated culture this year, so I'm pretty sure most people will be aware of it. But anyone who isn't, it's um, created by Michaela Cole, who um, has done Chewing Gum previously, which is also very excellent, and people should definitely check that out. I think it's on Netflix now as well, um, but. It follows this, this um, writer called uh, Arabella, who's also played by Michaela Crowe, um, as she confronts and processes um, what turns out to be and what she realises is, is actually a sexual assault. Um, as dark as it sounds in a lot of places, um, but it's just incredibly, incredibly powerful television. It's amazing bit of TV. Yeah, it is. It really is. And it approaches lots of subject matters that just I've never, ever seen approached in um 
on TV before um, in lots of different ways. While it is really, really dark, it's also really funny as well. Um, she's got a great grasp of character, of character development, of understanding the psyche of people. I think particularly with the sexual assault, it's um, loosely based on um, an experience that Michaela Cole unfortunately went through herself as well. Um, and putting all this stuff on TV could really feel to some people, not to, to myself, but to some people could look at that and see it as tokenistic or, or you know, latching on to things that very much are important um, social issues and let's not underestimate how important these social issues are, but it could easily be critiqued as something that is just sort of playing to to the sort of social justice crowd, if you like, and it really, really isn't for no. obvious reasons, but even the sort of layers that go through it, she is just so talented in the way that she writes, the way that she acts, the way that she, you know, helps direct this as well, and um, there's just so many different sensitive subject matters in there. Each character in it gets to follow their own different journey, um, and it all sort of seems to, to come to this sort of head where every every character in it has some sort of, or every episode at least has some sort of moment where um, someone feels violated or they feel like their consent is taken away from them. Um, and that can be really obvious violation. It can be really subtle violation. But the fact of the matter still stands that, that there's lots of different ways that this can happen. And she does a really, really great job of exploring that and exploring the ramifications of it and how the impact of, of that can really lead her life and the lives of those around her. And it's remarkable TV and I'd recommend it to anyone who hasn't watched it yet. I think uh, it's interesting because I think that series shows what TV can do that sometimes cinema can't or maybe you don't want it to. If that had been a one-off drama, there would have been it would almost have been overwhelming. But because it was episodic, you kind of, after every one, you had to sit back and really think about what you'd seen and what's happened and all. And then once you'd kind of worked that out in your own head, you were ready for the next episode to kind of move on. Absolutely, so, uh, yeah. I think that's a really good point. And I think what also plays into that was the fact that each episode, you you delved into a different character as well. And you yeah. delved into your sort of backstory. You delved into how lots of different, again, similar to what I was saying earlier about uh, Taking Someone Else, it doesn't do, it doesn't judge the characters for, for their decisions. Um, people are human, they are flawed, they're deeply flawed in a lot of their actions and the way that they move through the world and it, at no point does it does it judge people for that. It discusses it on an open, uh, in an open manner, but um, it, it sort of shows the complexities of human nature and um, the sort of ups and downs of of a general life of growing up in this sort of, sort of modern culture in London, but also the sort of huge horrendous ramifications that sexual assault can obviously, and lack of consent um, and individual consent can permeate through people's lives. Um, it is uh, honestly without any sort of hyperbole at all. It really is remarkable TV and um, it's, yeah, it's brilliant. Well, Despite us thinking at the beginning that we wouldn't have much to talk to, I think we've covered a fair bit there. So, Chris Wesley, thank you once again for joining us. Cheers, Ali. Thank you very much, Ali. And uh, we will be back soon with uh, the best music podcast of 2020. So I'll see you back here then. Mm -hmm.